so you can make your way to the back. And for the rest of us, let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know, Dan mentioned moments ago, this text is not one of those where you walk out of church feeling all pumped up and excited and good. It's one that is a reality check. It's one that really speaks to our world and the effects of sin on this world. And we can't always walk out of church just feeling on cloud nine because there are things that are realities in this world that need to be addressed. And that's what this text does. It's an assessment. It's an analysis of what's wrong with our world. Now, as believers, we can be thankful because everything that's wrong with this world will be set right when Christ returns. And for the individual, you can be made right with God because of Jesus Christ. So if the things in this text describe your life and the things that you're struggling with, there's deliverance. You can find forgiveness and a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So bear that in mind as we look at this text. You know, I used to hear my grandparents and then my parents talk about how bad things had gotten. I know none of you have experienced that. But I always thought, yeah, yeah, that's what old people do. Well, I'm officially an old person now. <laughs> because I'm feeling it too. Man, stuff that I looked at when I was younger that I thought would be inconceivable for our nation is now commonplace. We can see a societal and moral decline that's in your face every night on the evening news. It's undeniable. The scripture tells us that living in the last days, there will come terrible times. And that's what we see in this text as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul warns Timothy, mark this. In other words, listen up, pay attention, understand something. And what he goes on to give is a warning there will be terrible times in the last days. Now the question is, what are the last days? Most Bible teachers agree that the last days began with the ascension of Christ and it continues until the return of Christ. So if Paul is speaking in the first century of the last days, now in 2016 there have been 2,000 years of last days. But you know what that means? We're 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ. And so if the beginning of the church is in the last days and it continues, we are so much further down the road. And what we're going to see is this, that the last days there is a progressive movement because of the effects of sin on this world we will find that things will indeed become worse and worse as people commit themselves to selfishness, turning away from the things of God. 
And that's what we want to see first as we come to this text. When we look at this second verse, there's an analysis that begins in this text where a discussion is made about selfishness that will characterize the last days. And uh, I have had like four or five misfires on my uh, slide advancer. So let me try it one more time. And it's dead, guys. So if you could advance the slide, uh, just watch me and I'll tell you when to do it. And we can just put this away. <laughs> now, selfishness is something that's going to characterize the last day. And what we're going to see is there's going to be steadily a, a, a descent into deeper and deeper selfishness. Look at what the Scripture says at verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves. You know what this text is telling us? That the linchpin that holds all of these other sins together is selfishness. There are some 19 things that Paul mentions in this text that are descriptions of the last days. Look what heads the list. Selfishness. Again, the idea is people will be lovers of themselves. Now, pop psychology tells us, hey, unless you love yourself, you can't love other people. And they misconstrue this concept by saying that we have to love ourselves, that that's the most important thing that we can do. But you know what I found? People who run themselves down can also become very self-centered and very inward-focused. And they can become some of the most selfish people that you're ever going to encounter. It's not about loving ourselves. It's about viewing ourselves as loved by God. That's what gives us perspective. That, that is what gives us the ability to move through life and to make the proper decisions. There's another part of our culture, though, that is very committed to self-love. When we look at people's lives, it's all about them. They are committed to themselves above all else. And they make sure that other people commit to them as well. That's the idea of self-love. And this is what Paul is warning us about our culture. That people become more and more self-centered. And don't we see that? You see it in simple things like people being discourteous. In their driving, in their interaction with other people. We see greater and greater discourtesy in our culture. And again, it's because of that self-centeredness, that self-love. The Word of God tells us that, that this is going to progress and become worse and worse and worse as the last days progress. So if you think it's bad now, just wait. It's going to get worse. Look at what else the Scripture mentions. Not only is there this selfishness that is overwhelming our society, but they will also become lovers of money. Materialism. Again, look at our culture, and materialism is what drives everything. We need to understand that when the created becomes more important to us than the creator, we've lost perspective. 
and it's going to affect our behavior and our outlook toward others. The love of money will drive us to compromise, to forget God, to think only of ourselves, to prioritize in the wrong way. The description of our culture, according to the Word of God, is there will be greater and greater love for the material things of this world. And isn't that what drives our culture? We see people more and more in love with things rather than the things of God. Then look at what follows. They will become boastful and proud. Look, when you're selfish and when you're materialistic, you start to measure yourself and others by your toys. You start to look at yourself and say, I have more than these other people, therefore I'm better than them, and I'm going to let everyone know how great I art. That's the idea, right? We begin to come to the place to where everything is me-centered and there is a boasting that takes place. And again, we see this going on in our culture. Look at professional athletes. I remember a time when they at least feigned humility. But now, the idea is I will lift myself up. Look at people in the entertainment industry and all of the self-congratulatory affirmation that they require. It's all about me. It's everybody look at me. It's everybody, you know, grab onto this. Look at what I've done. Boasting is something that is wrong in Scripture. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That's a huge perspective builder. When people are boasting, what they're doing is they are usurping the glory that belongs to God because he is the one who gives us what we have. So when I come in to a situation and I start to exalt myself, I have discounted God. And my boasting is wrong. And boasting at its very core is pride, a sin that God hates. God detests pride. Why? Because pride places an individual above God. It was Satan's sin that led him into destruction, and it's brought about the destruction of so many lives since. God does not want pride to be something that characterizes us, but isn't that what drives many in this world today? They are so proud of what they have, what they've achieved, and they fail to give God the glory. As we move on to the next point, it says this. They are self-absorbed people, and they rebel against God. Now, this pride, this selfishness, what does it lead to? Look at what the text continues as we move on, and it says this, that they are abusive. Listen, when your life is all wrapped up in yourself, Anytime that someone threatens who you are, 
or this image that you've created for yourself, you're going to tear them down. The word that's translated abusive here in our NIV Bibles is a word that actually means blasphemer. In other words, one who speaks evil of other people. The idea is this is a person who abuses others with their speech. Proud people are abusive people. Oh, as long as you go along with them and praise them, they're fine. But the moment that something goes against something they want or something they perceive themselves to be, you get the venom of abusive speech. This is, again, something that we see all around us as people speak coarsely of one another. There's very little grace, very little mercy in our speech about other people. We escalate things. We become more and more insulting toward one another. And that's something that takes place in the last days because of the selfishness and the pride of men. Now, the next one seems a little archaic, disobedient to parents. How is that a mark of the last days? Look, if you can't see the systematic disintegration of the home in our culture, then you're not looking. The idea of being disobedient to parents means that they don't follow the foundational moral value that God gave in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. They have turned away from that moral boundary that God has established. And in the very core of where we should show honor and respect, we show disrespect. And in part, it's on the parents that this takes place because as parents, so many try to be friends rather than leaders. But in a large part, it's also in our society. I remember one day when one of our kids came home and said, Dad, if you discipline me, I can tell my teacher and they can take me out of your home. And I said, really? Well, why don't you go ahead and try that and see what kind of home you wind up in. That's the course you want to follow. Be my guest. I love you. I don't want to see that happen. But I'm the parent, and I'm going to set boundaries on you. And if you can't operate under that, maybe you'll find a home where you like it a little bit better. They didn't follow through. But I was warned. Listen, God wants us to understand authority, and authority is initially taught in the home. So when we come to the place to where we disregard the authorities that God has put into place, we have a society that breaks down. And don't we see that all around us, a broken society because of broken homes? This is a part of what has happened in these last days. Now, the next one doesn't seem quite as severe, does it? Ungrateful. I mean, what's wrong with being ungrateful? Understand this. Who is our gratitude directed toward first? Always a safe answer in church, God, right? We are to direct gratitude toward God. And to show us the seriousness of this, the Apostle Paul said this in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God 
Now look at the next words. Nor gave thanks to them, or to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right in a passage where Paul describes man's systematic movement away from God, we find lack of gratitude as one of the bellwethers that this is taking place. We need to understand that we are to be grateful to God. We are to acknowledge all that he has done for us. But what does a selfish person do? They are ungrateful. They look at something and say, well, I was entitled to that. The world owes me a living and I'm cashing in. That's the idea. Gratitude is not even in their wheelhouse. They don't think about it. And as we look at our world, it is progressing more and more and more toward those who are ungrateful. Man, you do something nice for somebody and it's not acknowledged. Not that that's why you do it, but it demonstrates the, the sickness of our society. And it's something that is going to grow and continue as our society moves further and further away from God. Look at the next one, unholy. Now, being unholy means that we are opposed to God's moral boundaries and we will do whatever we feel like doing, rebelling against what God has established as right or wrong. Self-loving people try to be an authority unto themselves. They try to set the rules and bend them in their favor rather than looking at what God says. And the next one is also evident. People will become unloving. Now, the idea of unloving in this text isn't that they're just not loving other people. It carries with it the idea that there is no tenderness, there's no kindness, there's no affection. As a matter of fact, those things are only seen as limiting and signs of weakness. They want nothing to do with love. They are unforgiving. Now, unforgiving carries with it the idea that we won't be able to be appeased. If you wrong me, I have it in for you. There's no forgiveness here. I don't get mad. I just get even. That's the idea of being unforgiving. And again, we live in a culture that can be characterized by being unforgiving. Slanderous. Now, various translations render this a little bit differently. For instance, the New American Standard says malicious gossips. The King James says false accusers. But these are people who will use their words to gain advantage. And if it means spreading a lie or spreading a little bit of gossip to tear down the reputation of somebody else, then as long as it advances my goals, I'm in for it. We get our word diabolical from the Greek word that's used here. So it really carries with it the idea of accusing. It's a description of Satan, the accuser of the saints without self-control. This has the ideas of no boundaries. It means 
If it feels good, do it. That's the rationale. What about brutal? Boy, do we see our society becoming more and more brutal. If someone gets in our way, mow them down. And the more brutal I am and the more harsh I am, the more people will fear, will, will fear me and the more I can get what I really want. That's the idea that in the last days, these things will progress. Hate what is good. You know what that means? Have you ever met that person who, given the opportunity to do something good or something bad, they go bad every time? It's like they enjoy the idea that I'm able to do something wrong and get away with it. It's something that's a rush for them because they put one over on everyone. So my doing that evil thing is something that I just relish and I enjoy. Treacherous, meaning that they're betrayers. Rash, meaning that they think only in terms of the moment, not about the long-term effects of something. Conceited, meaning that they look to glory and honor themselves rather than God. And then lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. You know what this text is saying? That there are people who will be so committed to pleasure, they disregard the things of God. Again, we see that in our society. But it's the next one I really want us to focus on. After Paul talks about people who will be lovers of self, and it's progressing through all of these things, look at what we find toward the end of this list of terrible, terrible sins. Verse 5. They have a form of godliness, but denying its power. You know what's amazing is the people that are described here, if we were to look at them, they would claim that they are religious people. I have a form of godliness. I go to such and such a church. Wow. You mean there's people like this in churches? Unfortunately, yes. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You see, what Paul is writing about to Timothy are all situations that Timothy was encountering right there in the church at Ephesus. We expect these things outside the walls of the church. But what Paul was warning Timothy about was these things will also take place inside the walls of the church and we have to be vigilant. And we have to recognize that in the last days, yes, the church itself will be influenced by these things. Let me just say, everything in this list, we should look at ourselves and evaluate, am I guilty of these things? Um, by the way, if you're proud, you won't recognize it, you know, if it is a problem. <laughs> but understand that these are things that we're to avoid, and Paul brings this out so clearly in the fifth verse. He says, have nothing to do with them. 
Don't have anything to do with any of these things that are appearing in this list. Don't identify yourself with any of these. They should have no part in our lives. And even though we claim to be religious, the power of true faith is transformative. In Jesus Christ, we are delivered from these things. So if you name the name of Christ, these descriptions have no place in your life. We need to forsake them. And we need to find in Jesus Christ the deliverance that we can experience from these things. All around us, we're going to see this societally. But the church isn't isolated from culture. So as our culture corrupts, it can cause our church body to corrupt. And we need to pray for ourselves and for our church family that these things won't destroy us. Now, as we come to the next section of this text, starting at verse 6, we find the strategy of those who promote this kind of unholy living. And what we want to find, if you could back that up just one, I think there should be a point A in there. Thank you. We're going to see that there are those who will sway others by worming their way in to gain control. Now, when we come to the sixth verse, I dreaded this since I knew that I would be speaking on 2 Timothy, and let me read it in a voice that many hear when they hear this being taught. They're the kind of people who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-wheeled women, right? You look at this, and it sounds like Paul is the ultimate chauvinist. And like he's saying that women somehow are weak-willed and dumb. And that's not what he's saying in this text. All right? Understand this. When Paul is addressing this sixth verse, he's talking about a specific situation that had taken place in the church at Ephesus that Timothy needed to address. He is not saying that all women everywhere are weak-willed, loaded down to sin, and pursuing evil pleasures. Okay? And we all know that that isn't true because we know godly women that that just doesn't describe. And the same was true in the first century. And there were godly women within the church at Ephesus. But there was another class of women in the church at Ephesus who were living for themselves. And they could have just as easily been men. As a matter of fact, a little bit later in the text, he talks about men who have depraved minds. And he's not saying that all men have depraved minds. So what he's saying in this text is that within the church at Ephesus, Timothy had a problem. And the problem was there were false teachers who were going into the homes of women that they would identify as vulnerable, and they were leading them astray because they saw them as easy marks. And so what Paul is doing is identifying a problem for Timothy to go and address. Now, I think we can expand the principle that we find in this text. And the principle is this. False teachers will look for the uninformed, 
for the people who are easily manipulated and controlled, and they're opportunists. They'll go after them, they'll mislead them, and trouble will come into people's lives and the life of the church when that happens. We need to understand that there are some in this world who are committed to leading others astray. They're the scam artists that come and say what people want to hear so that those people will in turn follow them. Look in your Bibles at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy and look at the third verse. Paul warns about this further in this passage when he says, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Now look at this. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. People have a tendency when they're following disobedience and making whatever they feel to be right, right, to be misled. And certainly that's what we find here in chapter 3 in the 6th verse. Look again carefully at this text. And notice it says, these are the kind who worm their way into homes. In other words, they come in stealthily. They worm their way into homes and gain control over who? Over the weak-willed women. Again, these are the women at Ephesus, a specific group with a specific problem. And look at some of the problems that this select group had. First of all, they were loaded down with sin. I think there's a principle we need to understand. When you are loaded down with sin, you are ripe for false doctrine. Sin causes us to look and say, hmm, how can I continue in this sin that I really enjoy? So I'm going to look for teaching and doctrine that allows me to continue in the way that I want to live. And believe me, look hard enough and you'll find it out there. If you want to have your way and do what you want to do, look long enough and hard enough and somebody's going to agree with you. And you know, that's what people do. There have been times where I've counseled somebody and I've shown them the Word of God and I've said, look, this is what the Word of God says in your life. And you know what they do? They leave. And they look until they find a pastor in a church who will let them do what they want to do. God's Word is given to us and it means what it says and it says what it means. But when we're loaded down with sin, we don't want to listen. It says in this text also that they will follow or be swayed by all kinds of evil desires. The vulnerable are people who seek to have their evil desires fulfilled. And then finally, we come to the last point. They stand in opposition to the truth. Look at verse 8. After Paul says they're always learning never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, he gives us an example. And that example is Janus and Jambres. And they were the magicians that were with Pharaoh that stood opposed to Moses. Now, you won't find their names mentioned in the Exodus account. 
In Jewish tradition, their names were mentioned, and their names have some interesting meanings. For instance, Janus means he who seduces, and Jambres means he who makes rebellion. So whether these were actual names or representation of who they were, what we do know is this. In Exodus chapter 7, where you'll find this story, these two counterfeited the miracle that Moses had performed with his staff turning into a serpent. And they were trying to sway Pharaoh into rebelling against God by saying, look, we can do this too. You know, something that we find is this. Satan loves to counterfeit the work of God, to deceive people, to fool people. And so the warning in this text is against those who counterfeit the work of God. To those who aren't paying attention, you can get someone in your midst who appears to have a form of godliness, who by all outward appearances appears to be someone who is very good and very godly, but like Janus and Jambres, they're not. They're there to lead people astray. And you know, the scary part for us is not only do we find that as individuals we can encounter those who will lead astray as we rub shoulders with others, but go on the internet, turn on your TV, listen to the radio, and there are many out there who can deceive you and fool you by claiming that they're speaking for God, but in reality they're speaking for themselves. We need to be careful about that. Look at how verse 8 goes on to describe people like Janus and Jambres. It says, they are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Now, to have a depraved mind means that their minds are so wicked, so evil, so manipulative, that all they do is move deeper and deeper into the extreme of rebellion against God. That's what a depraved mind does, a corrupted mind. It doesn't become better. It becomes worse. Why? It doesn't become better because, as far as the faith is concerned, they're rejected. In other words, they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They may profess it, but their activity and their teaching will go further and further and further away from the truth of Jesus Christ. And isn't that something that we see? We've seen cult leader after cult leader do horrible things as they lead people, initially presenting themselves as men of God, they lead them into more and more despicable sin. And they call themselves godly. They are not people who have faith. They are rejected by God because they have rejected God. Now, when we look at this, it's kind of discouraging, isn't it? These are terrible things. But listen, 
life encounters terrible things. It can't be all sunshine and buttercups. There are those things that are difficult in our world because we live in a sin-sick world. There's one way to be delivered from it, and that is through Jesus Christ. For the false teacher, I'm thankful for the ninth verse. It says, they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Janice and Jambres demonstrated themselves to be wrong. When God brought the plagues, when God decimated the Egyptian army by the closing of the Red Sea, God was proven true. They were proven false. And what the Word of God is telling us in this text is eventually the truth comes out. There will be those who will come and say deceitful, horrible things that will draw people away. But the truth eventually comes out. So what must we do? We can leave the sermon and say, wow, the world's getting worse. Pastor said so. Bible said so. So, and I see it. Isn't that a shame? And we can walk away. But understand this. God has put into place a solution for a sin-sick world. And that solution is him sending his son into this world to die on the cross for selfish, materialistic people that they might be delivered from those things and come into a relationship with the Father. When they turn from that sin to Christ, there is forgiveness. For all of us, to one degree or another, we're engaged in the things that are described in this text apart from Jesus Christ. There's no deliverance from those things. But in him, you can find forgiveness. You can find a relationship with the Father. The scripture tells us that while we were yet sinners, in other words, while we were like the people described in this text, Christ died for us. So because of him, there's a place of forgiveness. And there's hope. We also know this from Scripture. This sin-sick world will continue to get worse, but Christ is coming again, and he's going to make it right. And he's the only one. doesn't matter who we vote in. It doesn't matter what we try to do societally to change society. That's like putting a Band-Aid on a cancer sore. We have a sin-sick world that needs Jesus. That needs to be the focal point of our hearts and our lives and our energy and our resources. Doing the things that matter. Doing the things that change hearts and lives. We live in the last days. We expect these last days to become worse and worse and worse. But here's our hope as believers. God wins. 
evil is vanquished. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the warning that it gives us about this world. But how we thank you that more than just the hope that eventually false teachers are found to be foolish and found to be who they are, there is deliverance from these things in Jesus Christ. Well, Father, may we take this message to those around us and share its truth. May we be evangelists and messengers of that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's.